Hello, lovelies. Well, we are going to go from zero to 60 today because a brother from another mother is also feeling up the metaphorical elephant. And I have uh, a piece of the puzzle that I want to give him. So if I have to explain it to him, then I may as well explain it to you as well. But I can't help but thinking that elephant is going to get lucky one day. (laughs) Oh, my. Okay, I'm going to be painting you a little word picture. And I'm going to be doing it to make a point. I'm going to use it for demonstration purposes only. And it doesn't mean that I think it's true. But I certainly think it's interesting. So here goes. Imagine for a moment that humanity had a parasite. A parasite that is aramonic and Mephistophelian in nature. Now I'm going to stop right there as I had to look up both of those words. They're kind of big words, right? Mephistophelian is wicked and fiendish, and Aramanic is antagonist who is a spirit of darkness and evil in Zoroastrianism. So that's kind of a handful, right? But anyway, let's just imagine that the human soul does not completely fill up the human meat suit. So there's a little bit of extra room in there. And before birth, this parasite sneaks in to the human body and resides there alongside the human soul for the life of the human. What's interesting about this parasite is that it operates in the non-physical realm at a subconscious level. And it's very, very smart. If you were a non-material, subconscious, highly intelligent creature and you wanted to hide, you did not want to be discovered, how would you do that? How would you hide or guarantee at least that they would have a hard time finding you? Is there a way you could stop them looking for you where you hide? Is there a way in which you can put restrictions on your host on where they're allowed to look? If your host ever became suspicious that something might be going on, perhaps you would create a prison, and I don't mean a physical prison, of cement and steel, but a metaphorical prison of ideas and concepts, society and culture that would prevent your host from looking over there. Speaking of looking over there, this kind of blew my mind because when I tell people that I'm interested in magic, I always get the, uh, oh, can you do tricks <laughs> for me? 
And I'm like, no, 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 not that kind of magic, the other kind of magic, right? But consider this for a moment. The other kind of magic relies on powerful psychological illusion. The magician creates their tricks by exploiting gaps and errors in our conscious experience. For example, magicians use misdirection to manipulate what you attend to, and this allows them to control what you see and what you miss. Doesn't that just sound like something you might do if you're a highly intelligent, aromatic, Mephistophelian, clever parasite? Isn't that exactly what you might do? (laughs) I know this sounds all very invasion of the body snatchers, right? (laughs) But why did I bring it up? Well, I brought it up for two reasons. One, because Rudolf Steiner is the person that introduced me to this concept and he made it very clear that this information has been suppressed from humanity for the very simple reason that the secret brotherhoods do not believe that humanity is mature enough to you can't handle the truth basically and he also believes that now is the time well a hundred years ago was the time that this information this spiritual intelligence needs to filter down into humanity so there you go rudolph i did my part but more than that the reason I brought it up is because it paints a really interesting picture. Because if these beings did create a paradigm prison for humanity, or if humans created it for themselves, for example, Tony Wright, a really great researcher who looks at the development of the left and right hemispheres of the brain as we left the tropical rainforest and how our brain evolved into a pathological state. You have to check him out. We actually don't have a lecture of him on our symposium, but Google him because he uh, really, it's fascinating stuff. And so it could have equally been created that way. Or, as Tobias Churton points out, it could have started with the Enlightenment. He says it's more appropriate to call it the Great Blackout, but that could have been the beginning of this materialistic prison paradigm as well. But regardless of how it started, It would be the precise requirements of a paradigm prison that would prevent humanity from being able to see, understand, or access their own magic. So let me get into what a paradigm actually is. I went to see Rupert Sheldrake in London just before COVID, and I was very, very blessed 
to spend some time with him. And he elaborated on the idea of the way science works within paradigms. And he explained to me that Thomas Kuhn famously put forward in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, that science is centered on the idea of a paradigm, which is a set of theories and methods and so on, that the scientific community accepts as unproblematic. The paradigm determines the way that scientific discipline views the world. It sets the standard for what is good and bad in science. And it isn't criticized except during phases of crisis that may lead to a scientific revolution and a paradigm shift. What Kuhn showed is that at any given time, there is a shared model of reality which explains certain phenomena, but also sets limits on what fits in it. Right now, science is dominated by the materialistic theory of nature and consciousness, which says that the only reality is material matter. That means the very existence of consciousness is problematic. And that's why it's called the hard problem in philosophy of mind, the very fact that we're conscious, because we ought not to be according to materialism. And so the materialist theory says that minds are nothing but the activity of brains. Therefore, phenomena like telepathy and precognition ought not to happen, yet they do. So that paradigm means that the evidence for these things is embarrassing and would overthrow the paradigm if it were true. So the way to react to this is to pretend that things like this don't exist. The evidence is pushed under the carpet. It's all discredited and classified as pseudoscience and so on. As Rupert points out, the paradigm within which we exist affects our science. But it's not just our science it affects. It affects our faith. It affects our belief in what we can do and what we can't do to heal ourselves. It affects so many things. Later, I will show you how history is affected by paradigm by looking specifically at the history of ancient Egypt. But hey, since we've already gone down the body snatcher rabbit hole, let's go down another <laughs> and let's bend our minds even further. I want to go out on a limb and make the statement that history doesn't actually exist. Now, I know that that sounds like a radical claim, but I'm not alone in it. R.G. Collingwood, a British historian and philosopher, thinks that it's only common sense. What we perceive as the past is simply an illusion formed in our brains. The past used to exist, but it no longer does. Agnaten doesn't exist anymore, and neither does your childhood. The only thing that is real is the present. But if only the present is real, then what are historians studying? Or for that matter, what the hell am I making documentaries about? <laughs> historians study the only thing they could be studying, which is the present, right? 
the archives, the archaeological objects or ancient texts, or even books by other historians. The historian is always investigating things in the present, in the now. And from these present things, Collingwood tells us the historian actually constructs history. He studies the texts, artifacts, ruins, and so on. And in that way, he creates an idea of what, say, ancient Egypt looked like. So it follows then that history is really just an idea that is constructed by the historian. The historian's job is to create a narrative that makes maximal sense of all the historical traces he finds in the present. History, then, is a story that the historian tells in order to understand what he finds in the present. History is just a story. Now, that's really interesting to me because on our Magical Egypt page, there's sometimes people that are quite angry. They're angry that I'm not telling, not me, but John or Chance or me, maybe, I don't know, and not telling the story the way that they would like it to be told. And in the beginning, before I realized that history is just a story, <laughs> I used to get kind of defensive about it because I liked John's story. I liked it a lot. It made a lot of sense to me. But that doesn't mean that John's story makes sense to everybody. And so now it's kind of like, well, if you don't like that story, make up your own story, right? Because history is just a story. So how does that work exactly? How does one create a narrative that explains historical events? What does the historian have to add to the bare facts to generate his story? Well, this is where it gets interesting. By far the most influential philosopher of history in the early 19th century, and maybe ever, I don't know, I haven't studied that much, was George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Side note here, I have to uh, talk to Aaron more about it <laughs> because he does know a lot about Hegel. But Hegel believed that nobody can escape from their own present time to take a position outside of history. The way we think and how we are is shaped by our point in history, time, society, and culture. In our case, our materialistic prison paradigm, right? Paradigm, again, it's kind of a package, right, of time and society and culture. It's a shared reality. So history sits within the paradigm. The same thing with science, right? Science sits within it too. So then if that is the case, we should be able to look at ancient Egypt throughout time, throughout paradigms, and see how the history of ancient Egypt was written under different paradigms, thereby revealing 
the different paradigm, thereby breaking us free from the restrictions of believing only one paradigm. I mean, unless you think our paradigm is the best, right? And you want to (laughs) invest in materialism. But I'm going to walk us through a little bit of history and show us how that actually works. When the Rosetta Stone was found during the Napoleonic era, ancient Egypt was held in the highest regard. According to Jeremy Nadler in the Shamanic Wisdom in the Pyramid Text, ancient Egypt was seen as harboring a tradition of profound wisdom that was the inspirational font of Greek religion, mythology, and philosophy, particularly Platonism and Hermeticism. In 1799, this knowledge of Egypt depended on ancient commentators such as Plutarch, Diodorus, Iamblichus, and Aristotle. According to Aristotle, Egypt was the cradle of mathematics, and the priests of Egypt invented geometry, arithmetic, and astronomy. In addition, other ancient sources testified that prominent Greek thinkers like Thales, Pythagoras, and Plato learned their philosophy and science from the Egyptians. It was 20 years, however, before Jean-Francis Champollion, (laughs) my French is terrible, announced the transliteration of the Egyptian scripts in Paris in 1822. And with that, Egyptology was born. Early Egyptologists like Champollion, Deruge, and Bruges held a great reverence for Egypt as the source of a sublime metaphysics and theology. But this view is not to last. On the contrary, the opinions held by the Egyptology establishment were about to embark on a steady decline. By the turn of the century, earlier views of Egypt were displaced by a far more critical approach as Egyptology established itself as a professional academic discipline. Egyptologists like Maspero and Ermans describe the ancients as semi-barbarians and compilers of spells. To many of the first generation of scholars, the sacred literature of ancient Egypt seems so muddled, haphazard, and obscure that any residual hopes of rediscovering some forgotten wisdom or secret knowledge came to seem a foolish endeavor. Thus, it was concluded that the ancient Egyptian mind was pre-philosophical, incapable of coherent or systematic thought, and given to expressing itself in rather crude imagery. This view of the ancient Egyptian mind, to a large extent, remained the dominant one among Egyptologists for much of the 20th century. That Egyptians, far from being the guardians of secret wisdom, were actually an ignorant lot who had not yet discovered philosophy or science. As Egyptologist B. L. Goff wrote in the late 1970s, In ancient Egypt, as also elsewhere in the ancient world, there was no knowledge of consistent laws governing the operation of everything around us. 
In the second part of the 20th century, however, the view of the ancient Egyptian mind as pre-philosophical and incapable of accessing worthwhile knowledge became less and less sustainable. A growing rift thus emerged between mainstream Egyptology and the outsiders, who usually did not have a formal qualification in Egyptology and so could easily be dismissed as cranks. Foremost among the latter was Are Shwala de Lubitsch, who, despite his detailed study of the theoretical principles and practical applications of ancient Egyptian mathematics in the Temple of Man, remained virtually ignored by the Egyptological establishment. In fact, when the Temple of Man first appeared in French in 1957, the eminent Egyptologist Etienne Drotion counseled his colleagues to build a common wall of silence around it, lest it find its way into public view. With just a few notable exceptions, that injunction was obeyed within Egyptology itself. Schwaller's observations and esteem for the ancient Egyptians might have been lost to obscurity had it not been for our beloved John Anthony West who published Serpent in the Sky in 1979. And as Peter Tompkins writes in the foreword to the book, in the current joust between materialist and metaphysician, with admirers of the former screaming for blood from the latter, John Anthony West has taken up the banner in support of the Alsatian philosopher R.A. Shwala de Lubitsch. It is the thesis of de Lubitsch, lucidly developed by West, that the builders of ancient Egypt had far more sophisticated understanding of metaphysics and of the laws which govern man and this universe than most Egyptologists have been willing to admit. It is a striking thesis, but unpopular with orthodox scholars who have deliberately ignored for 20 years, though they proffer no argument against it other than it contravenes except dogma. <clears throat> Do I hear paradigm? Serpent in the Sky presented a now revolutionary, exhaustively documented reinterpretation of the civilization of ancient Egypt. West showed that Egyptian science, medicine, mathematics, and astronomy were all of an exponentially higher order of refinement and sophistication than modern scholars will acknowledge. Ultimately, it was John's book that inspired and comprised a significant portion of the original Magical Egypt documentary series, and this spread the knowledge about Egypt even further into the modern world. And I think we can say that he was a huge success in shifting the paradigm about the wisdom of ancient Egypt. Now, I'm hoping that through that little history lesson, courtesy of Jeremy Nadler, that you could see clearly how the history that was written about ancient Egypt was dependent upon the paradigm within which it was written. Paradigms can be incredibly dangerous things and also incredibly funny. <laughs> Funny because they're so stupid. I am a big fan of Joe Rogan sometimes, and uh, particularly when he has John or had John West on. But recently he had an eminent 
materialistic scientist who is a leader within our current paradigm. And I just want you to listen to the question that Joe Brogan asked and the answer that he was given. Human beings, I mean, when did we really start pondering the 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 scope of the universe when pretty that... pretty recently i mean if you uh if you think about the beginnings of modern physics you know you can start with uh galileo you can start with newton but in any event we're talking on the order of hundreds of years and the amazing thing in hundreds of years we've gone from a complete lack of understanding about how anything in the world actually works to the development of newton's equations where you can make fantastically accurate predictions about solar eclipses or lunar eclipses or motions of the planets and so on. And then, you know, a couple hundred years after that, we migrate from that understanding, which is basically an encapsulation of the patterns that we can all discern with the naked eye. We develop a whole new body of physical law called quantum mechanics, which is so completely counterintuitive which describes the world in terms of qualities that we don't ever see with the naked eye, but nevertheless, we can use the math to make predictions, and the predictions are borne out by experiment. And that progression only took, say, a couple hundred years. Way to go, Brian. I want to see you build a pyramid. (laughs) I mean, is that seriously like the most ignorant thing that you've ever heard? I don't know. I... I, I'm speechless, right? But this is why it's dangerous. And to bring this all back to magic, magic doesn't exist within the material realm. And so there is no wonder why it is such an alien concept to people, that people don't believe in it, that don't believe that it's possible, that don't understand it at all. It's no surprise, given our materialistic prison paradigm, that magic is alien to us. I love Gordon White, who is an author of fabulous books and also the host of the Rune Suit podcast. And when I interviewed him about the subject of magic, he made a very adroit observation that magic has been with humanity as long as there has been humanity, except for the last 200 years or so. So taking magic out of the story of history renders our story about history incomplete. He explained that Our materialistic culture trying to understand the least materialistic culture of all time is nothing but a fool's game. And so it's no surprise at all that we look at the ancient Egyptians and don't see what might be the most important part of their culture. Now, there are two movies that I would like to suggest as homework. Um, for you to look at because they really do an amazing job at um, painting a picture about the effects of paradigm on a culture. The first one is The Lobster, 
And I love the lobster because in the lobster you have a story about a totally normal human culture with a totally different paradigm than ours. And so things that we would take as absolutely normal would be completely strange to them. And the things that they take as completely normal are definitely strange to us. And it just paints a wonderful juxtaposition that is very demonstrative about how much a paradigm can affect your culture. The other one that I saw last night, in fact, was great as well. And it is called The Giver. And The Giver is a story about a culture in the future that, unlike any other culture that I can think of at the moment, is a culture with amnesia. They have had their memories stolen from them. And the movie starts out in black and white as they have this perfect dystopian, authoritarian, totalitarian, happy, happy, joy, joy existence. And there is the role of the keeper of the memories within the community. And it's his job to pass on the memories to the new recruit who is going to eventually take his position. And as this young recruit has access to memories of humanity, his paradigm changes and he becomes initiated into a whole new meaning of what it is to be human. And that spoke very, very deeply to me because, yes, we are a civilization that has amnesia, but also we have had so much of what it means to be human stripped from us as well. And just like in the movie, when we have access once again to the full range of what it means to be human, our lives become so much richer. So, what have we learned? <laughs> what have we learned in this exciting episode of Magic Works? Well, the first thing is that we may or may not be victims of body snatches. And uh, honestly, I don't know if that's true or not. I have not been able to find a theosophist that I've been able to engage with in a meaningful manner about that material. But anyway, it's something interesting to consider. Oh, well, and also, look, you know what? The uh, Gnostics talk about the archons, and there's other, other texts and things that address this kind of subject matter, so it doesn't fall outside the realm of possibility as far as I'm concerned. But the other thing is that we are shaped by our paradigm. Our history is shaped by our paradigm. Our science, our healthcare, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to the planet are all shaped by our paradigm. And paradigms change, paradigms shift. Things that do not fit within a particular paradigm are made fun of and stuffed under the carpet, for better or for worse. And in our case, it is my contention that the things that are stuffed under the carpet do not serve us to be stuffed under the carpet. 
that our interconnectedness with each other, with the planet and with nature can only be improved by expanding our paradigm to include non-physical forces of all kinds, which we'll get into in another episode. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of Magic Works, and I hope you don't think I'm crazy, but uh, hey, it is what it is, right? (laughs) Uh, More to come if you can stand it. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, and one last thing I learned today, which is very interesting. Hang your mistletoe from your belly button and see where that takes things. Merry Christmas to you all. Hello, lovelies. I am so excited to announce the release of our new film called Heka. Heka looks at the magic of ancient Egypt and how that pertains to the story of ancient Egypt and fills in a whole new perspective that we have been missing collectively for hundreds of years. It features Gordon White, Chance Gardner, Joseph Patrick Farrell, Lon Milo Duquette, Tobias Churton, Graham Hancock, of course, the fabulous John Anthony West, Rupert Sheldrake, Stephen Skinner, Thomas Sheridan, Peter Mark Adams, Thomas Joseph Brown, Aton Veggie, Mog Morton, Bernardo Catstrop, Shauna Home, Mark Passio, John Seraki, and the goddess Joanna Kujawa. I am so incredibly proud of it, and I invite you to come and have a look. You can find a link on MagicalEgypt.com.
Thank you.